Well, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's so good to be back with you this morning. Uh, we enjoyed our time away. We're so glad that you got to hear from my good friend Michael last week, and I know that he blessed you. But it's also good to, to be back home and uh, would encourage you to, to think about the, some of the things that are coming up, especially VBS. We've got a work week next Sunday, and so we could use all the help that we could get for that. There's also some sign-up sheets in the back, and you can look those over. I know it's been several weeks since we've been in this study, but we're continuing our study entitled Wonderfully Made, which is a theology of the body, where we look at the body and see what the body teaches us uh, about God. And so when we begin reading in the book of Genesis, we discover many things about ourselves. We discover who we are, and we discover what our purpose is in life. We are uniquely made to represent God to the people all around us. And so to be made in the image of God means that we are to reflect that image to others. People are to see God in us. How so? Well, this plays out in many different ways. We are to be examples of God's love and his compassion. We are to treat people justly and rightly. We are to care for our neighbors and, and think of others more than we think of ourselves. We are to be holy as God is holy. And so the ways that we are to act like God are numerous. We read about them throughout Scripture, especially when you get to the Gospels and God himself is revealed in the flesh through Jesus Christ. However, there is a specific way mentioned in Genesis that we are to image God to others. And so let's look again. I know we looked at this verse a couple times, but let's look again at Genesis 1.27. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so this verse is, is very specific, and it stresses two things. First, all of us have been created in the image of God. And so we have value. We have purpose. Others are to see God in us. We are to be God's image bearers in this world. But then second, he says we were created male and female. And so there are two genders, and, and those two genders are not the same. They are each unique. There are no genders other than male and female. This is what God created in the beginning. We cannot invent our own gender no matter what anyone else says. And so we should not have to apologize for this. It's, it's not mean or hateful. It's just the truth. What is mean is to lie to someone and deceive them into believing something that is not true. God creates male and female. And, and just think about this. He did not have to do this. He could have just created one gender. He could have created us all alike. Why male and, th and female? Think about that for a moment. Why male and female? What we do learn about ourselves by observing our bodies um, is that we're given the answer to this question in the very next two verses. 
And so, so look at those. And he says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so God creates male and female so that we can be fruitful and multiply. And so it's God's plan for a man and a woman to marry and to have children. And, and all of this is stated within the context of being created in the image of God. When a man and a woman come together in marriage and become one and then bring a child into this world, what's happening is that we are imaging God. And so the language of two becoming one is reflective of Trinitarian language. What is supposed to happen in marriage is what happens within the Trinity, the Godhead. There is mutual submission, there is the sharing of gifts, there is sacrifice and putting the needs of others before oneself. There is love. And so our marriages are supposed to look like the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And not just our marriages only, but we also see this is supposed to be true of families as well. And so we continue to imitate God when we bring children into this world. We are creating new life. And we do not do this on our own. I want you to notice Genesis 4 and verse 1. This is a verse that um, we, don't, we don't spend a lot of time looking at. It's often overlooked because it comes right before the story of Cain and Abel. But it's an important verse. It's about family and about this first child that's born to Adam and Eve. And it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And what we see here is that Adam and Eve are fulfilling God's command to be fruitful and multiply. What is fascinating about this verse is how Eve describes the birth of her child. She says it was only possible with the help of the Lord. And so what we learn from this is that every birth is like a little miracle. God is at work when a child is born. And anyone who has had a child knows this and understands this. To, to hold your child for the first time is unbelievable. It's a humbling experience. We know and understand the biology. We can, we can understand all the science. But nothing prepares us for that moment because it's more than biology. It's spiritual. And God is involved. And when we begin to mess with gender, sexuality, or a fetus, we are messing with the things of God. We are meddling with God's plans. Sexuality is an amazing gift and blessing but it has not been given us so that we can do with it whatever we want to. It has a purpose, and it's important that we abide by that purpose. Bringing life into the world is a great responsibility. 
Again, we're given another opportunity here to image God to the people around us. Think about this. Jesus taught us to pray our Father who art in heaven. And so God is our Father. And when we welcome children into this world, we are to be like God. We are to provide for them and to care for them. We are to teach them the ways that they ought to go. We are to love them. We are to be gracious and merciful toward them because guess what? Children are going to mess up. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to break our hearts. And and we should know and understand this and be prepared for this because we have done the same to God. And yet what does God do? He welcomes us back every time. You know, there's not as much teaching on marriage and parenting in the Bible as some suspect. However, God's relationship with his people is described over and over again as a marriage and as a parent-child relationship. And so the Bible does not have to lay out a bunch of guidelines for how to have a great marriage or how to be a successful parent, because all we have to do is look to God. If we want to be a better spouse, then look at how God loves Israel. If we want to be a better parent, then look at how God loves his children. The best advice on on being a better spouse or parent is found within the stories of the Bible. Pay attention to God and, and what he does and how he loves and imitate him. The family is essential to life and blessing. And this is expressed in Ephesians 6, verses 2 through 3, where it says, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And so we're not just to honor our parents because it's the right thing to do. It is. But we are to honor them so that we will have a good life so that we will be blessed and that we will benefit from it. The family is also the foundation for all other institutions. And so we see this within the church. What makes a good leader in the church is someone who has done well as a husband and as a father, someone who has imitated God in their family life. So, for instance, 1 Timothy 3.12 states, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Does your wife respect you because of your love for her? Have you not provoked your children to anger? Are your children faithful because you've showed them the love of God and you've imitated it in front of them? And if the church is going to do well, we need husbands and fathers who are serious about imitating God to the people that are closest to them. You know, Genesis begins with a bombshell. What Genesis 1 and 2 do is they, it elevates humanity, it elevates marriage, and it also elevates families. And all, all three of these things have a purpose. We are created in the image of God. We are image bearers. We are to be representatives of God in our marriages and also within our families. 
And we have to figure out if we're being influenced more by God or if we're being influenced more by the culture. Think about the language that we use to speak of our spouse or our kids. God says that we are to treat our spouses and our kids with dignity and respect and with honor. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How does Christ, how does Jesus speak of the church? Well, he doesn't joke about the church or poke fun of the church or belittle the church. The spouse is not a ball and chain. The best day of the year is not the day that your kids go back to school. The best year of your life is not the year that your kids move out. If we're going to image God to the world around us through our marriages and through our families, then we must speak of our spouses and our children as God speaks of us. We must think highly of these institutions that God has blessed us with. And we must be careful because the institutions of marriage and family are under attack in our culture. And there's much evidence of this. The, the, you can look at the birth rate. The birth rate in our country continues to decline. Bill Maher, a, a popular, popular political pundit, who was celebrating the, his 500th episode of his television show, said, we went on the air in 2003, and since then, weed has become increasingly legal, religion is on the decline, and less people are having children. You're welcome, America. And perhaps the greatest threat to marriage and family is what author Carl Truman calls radical individualism. And it's the belief that we are to be ourselves no matter the consequences. We are to be ourselves no matter what it does to ourselves or others. It is pure libertinism. No one has the right to tell us what to do. No one has the right to tell us how to act. Life is about one's own truth, and you just follow it wherever it leads you. It's looking inward for one's own identity and purpose rather than looking outward, rather than looking beyond, rather than looking to God. And you see this radical individualism expressed in many different ways. After all, it's whatever you make it out to be. And it can take on many forms. However, one vivid example of it is found in a 2009 article entitled, I was married with two kids when I realized I was gay. And I want you to listen to the description of this article. It says, in the article, 36-year-old Melissa Rainey was married to her best friend and had two beautiful, healthy children. And she and her husband had successful careers in a beautiful home. And Melissa said her life changed one day when she did a simple Google search on Kate McKinnon, the actress and comedian widely known through her work as part of the regular cast on Saturday Night Live. And Melissa was shocked to discover that Kate McKinnon was a lesbian. And the article goes on to quote Melissa saying, at that moment, I realized that I wanted a relationship with a woman like her. She admitted to feeling terrible for even having this thought since she was faithfully married to her husband. Melissa then went through a two-year period where she began to explore where she fell on the sexuality spectrum. And she began to see that there was, as she put it, part of herself that wasn't fully living. 
And she began to confide these feelings to some of those closest to her. And here is the justification that Melissa gave for traveling down this trajectory. You get one life, this is your life, and no one else's. Now I want you to listen to Timothy Tennant's assessment of this article. He says, Melissa Rainey embraced the belief that her life belonged to her. A life of autonomous solitude was her ticket to true freedom, a life free from any obligations to others, your life and no one else's. In accepting this lie, she communicated to her family, her husband, her children, and any prior commitments she had made that they must now bow to her new value of autonomy. Her individualism trumped any communal or covenantal commitments, including her marriage vows and even her biological commitments to her children. And I want us to compare Melissa Rainey's philosophy for life, a philosophy that is prevalent in our culture, with what God says. And so she says, you get one life. This is your life and no one else's. But compare that with some passages from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Because you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Or Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And those are just two. We could list a lot more. Over the last few years, we have heard people on both the left and the right champion the phrase, my body, my choice. Both sides have embraced this philosophy for different reasons. And the truth is, this philosophy is unchristian, no matter how it is used. God says the opposite. God says we are not our own, that we belong to him, and that Christ lives in us, and that we are to use our bodies to glorify him. Where does this radical individualism lead? What would happen if everyone just did whatever they wanted to do? If everyone just followed their own truth? We know. The last line in the book of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Go read the book of Judges. It's not a pretty picture. It's not a time and place that, that people want to go back to. Radical individualism is not something new. It has been tried before. True freedom is not found in doing whatever it is we want to do. True freedom is found in following Christ and becoming the people that we were created and meant to be. Another text that pushes back against the idea of radical individualism is Psalm 127. It's a psalm written by, by Solomon 
uh, later in his life. And so you'll remember that, that Solomon tried radical individualism. He did whatever he wanted. He, he did not deny himself any pleasure. And he writes about this at length in the book of Ecclesiastes. But he also writes about it here in Psalm 127. And this is what he concludes. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And so this psalm opens with three vanities or three warnings. He first says it is vanity to try to do it on your own. It's vanity to try to build something using your own strength. Next, he says, it's vanity to think that you can protect yourself and all your possessions. And finally, he says, it's vanity to make life all about pursuing possessions. And this was written a long time ago. But it is a relevant critique of our own culture that is rooted in materialism and individualism. So if we cannot find meaning in striking out on our own and accumulating wealth and possessions, then where can we find meaning? Well, surprisingly, Solomon says the answer is family. If you want to be blessed, if you want your life to be meaningful, then don't try to make a name for yourself. Instead, have a family and invest in them. One of the problems with our culture is we want instant gratification. We don't want to invest for the future. We don't want to sacrifice for what is to come. Derek Kidner, commenting on Psalm 127, says this about the, the latter part, about the children. He says, it's not untypical of God's gifts that first they are liabilities, or at least responsibilities, before they become obvious assets. The greater the promise, the more likely that these sons will be a handful before they are a quiverful. What makes life meaningful is not following our passions wherever they lead. It's living for someone else. It's doing life together. It's sacrifice. It's creating a life and accepting all the responsibilities that come with it. That is the great adventure. And G.K. Chesterton recognized this long ago, as many people um, at his time were, were looking out into the world for happiness. Chesterton looked to the family, and, and he critiqued the pursuits of personal pleasure and re rightly reminded us that the greatest adventure of all is much closer than we realize. And so in a magnificent chapter on the family in his book, Heretics, and I, I would suggest if you have time to go online, you can find it um, there for free. 
he, he wrote an entire chapter on the family here. And I know this is a lengthy quote. I know, I know the last two sermons I've done lengthy quotes. I, I'm not going to do this every time, but this is too good not to, not to share. But listen to Chesterton's words. He says, it's a good thing for a man to live in a family in the same sense that it is a beautiful and delightful thing for a man to be snowed up in a street. They all force him to realize that life is not a thing from outside, but a thing from inside. Above all, they all insist upon the fact that life, if it be a truly stimulating and fascinating life, is such a thing which, of its nature, exists in, in spite of ourselves. The best way that a man could test his readiness to encounter the common variety of mankind would be to climb down a chimney into a house at random and get on as well as possible with the people inside. And that is essentially what each one of us did on the day that he was born. This is indeed the sublime and special romance of the family. It is romantic because it is a toss-up. It is romantic because it is everything that its enemies call it. It is romantic because it is arbitrary. It is romantic because it is there. So long as you have groups of men chosen rationally, you have some special or sectarian atmosphere. It is when you have groups of men chosen irrationally that you have men. The element of adventure begins to exist, for an adventure is, by its nature, a thing that comes to us. It is a thing that chooses us, not a thing that we choose. Falling in love has been often regarded as the supreme adventure, the supreme romantic accident. And so much as there is in it something outside ourselves, something of a sort of merry fatalism, this is very true. Love does take us and transfigure and torture us. It does break our hearts with an unbearable beauty, like the unbearable beauty of music. But insofar as we have certainly something to do with the matter, insofar as we are in some sense prepared to fall in love, in some sense to jump into it, insofar as we do some extent choose, and to some extent even judge, in all this, falling in love is not truly romantic is not truly adventurous at all. In this degree, the supreme adventure is not falling in love. The supreme adventure is being born. There we do walk suddenly into a splendid and startling trap. There we do see something of which we have not dreamed before. Our father and mother do lie in wait for us and leap out upon us like brigands from a bush. Our uncle is a surprise. Our aunt is, the, in the beautiful common expression, a bolt from the blue. When we step into the family, by the act of being born, we do step into a world which is incalculable, into a world which has its own strange laws, into a world which could do without us, into a world that we have not made. In other words, when we step into the family, we step into a fairy tale. You may have to read that again. I'll share it online after um, worship today. Um, it takes some time. Chesterton's a deep thinker, but uh, there's, there's a lot of truth there. And we need to hear Chesterton's words today because 
we live in a world which has forgotten the romanticism of family. Family is not ordinary or old-fashioned. It's a great adventure that we should all pursue. Without family, we would not be the people who we are today. Family challenges us and shapes us in, in ways that we cannot imagine. Family teaches us to sacrifice and to, to live for someone other than ourselves. Family trains us to compromise and to get along with others. And it's within a family that we first learn what love is and how to love in return. Family is a blessing. Although many today tend to think they know better than God, it seems that God knew exactly what he was doing when he created Adam and Eve and commanded them to begin a family. And maybe the problem is not family or scripture that, that seems to some to be outdated or old-fashioned. Maybe the problem is that we have not looked closely enough at the things of God to realize their wonder and their magnificence. Family is anything but ordinary. It is, as Chesterton says, the greatest adventure. Don't believe the lies the world tells you. Follow God. Trust Him. Have a family and invest in them. And I guarantee you, you'll be truly amazed. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for your wisdom. Wisdom that is not always apparent to the world. Wisdom that sometimes the world does not recognize. May we turn our attention to your word and your wisdom. May we explore it. May we meditate on it. May we come to know it better. May we have a deep understanding of your ways. We're so thankful for the many ways that you've blessed us. We're thankful for the gifts of marriage and family. And I pray that we would strive to be image bearers, that we would strive to imitate you within our marriages and within our families so that people from the outside would recognize you when they look at our marriages and families. We're so thankful for, for Jesus, who is your son, who reveals you to us. And may we be like him in every single way as we live this life here on earth. We pray this in his name. Amen.